Welcome back to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we were gone for a while, and it's been a while. I almost forgot how to do podcasts, but we're back. And we asked the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. This is a podcast about horror stuff. We're going to be talking about... Uh, controversial subjects potentially talking about controversial subjects it doesn't always happen but sometimes it does and it could involve uh, some some dark subject matter like you know murder rape child abuse there will be foul language so if that's not your cup of tea how did you find this podcast because that's kind of like what you would search for if you were to stumble upon this podcast anyway that's that's the trigger warning we're gonna be talking about bad stuff if that is your cup of tea welcome to horror makes us happy <laughs> Coming up in the near future, we're going to be uh, interviewing actress and producer Julianne Prescott, another author, Paula D. Ash, another author, Robert P. Ottoni? Ottone? That's a good question. I'd have to ask him how mm. he pronounced that. Atone or Ottoni? I'm going to guess not with the accent on the E, but... I like Ottone. That way it's like a, like a homonym. Homophone? Homophone. That one. But today, we have the pleasure of the company of author Philip Fercasi. Best known for such works as Beneath the Pale Sky, A Child Alone with Strangers, and Gothic. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hey, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Our pleasure. Uh, before we get into the uh, meat of the interview or anything, you want to pitch whatever you're currently working on? Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that I was very impressed that you got my pronunciation of my name correct. We didn't even go. I was going to ask, like, you know, as I'm like nailed it. mulling nailed on it. a tone, a Tony, is it Percossi, Percossi, no, right? you got it. Yeah, you got it. Uh, do I have anything I want to pitch? Uh, yeah, you know, I just, um, I got a couple novels out, Child Alone with Strangers from Taylor's Press, Gothic from Cemetery Dance, and um, coming out in July from Tor Nightfire in the US and Orbit in the UK will be Boys in the Valley. That's what I'm working on, cool. promoting anyway. I'm writing another novel for Tor Nightfire right now that'll come out in 2024. All right. Well, we uh, we talked a little bit briefly uh, before you got on here, so I know that you know the theme of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, before we get into that, quick note for the listeners. You know, we do realize that some of these calls, we try to keep it between 60 to 90 minutes. Um, usually the last third is uh, pretty interesting too. So, you know, a lot of people like to uh, listen to the childhood section at the beginning, but we also suggest that you come back and listen to the last third as well. Um Speaking of the childhood, what were some of your earliest memories of scary things? As far as like scary stuff from my childhood, I mean, I grew up in the 80s and so I wasn't really, uh, this is back in in the Midwest, you know, I mean, so this is back when like you were kind of left to your own devices. Your own devices yeah. And I was also the youngest of six. So by the time I came around, my parents were just like, you know, don't die, mm-hmm. don't whatever, go, don't die, don't go to jail. Good luck with everything, uh, you know. And so I, you know, I watched a lot of like, um, you know, not stuff that I, inappropriate stuff, but like I watched a lot of creature features. I watched a lot of vampire movies. I watched a lot of Godzilla movies and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was really into the fantasy of it. And, um, but I do remember very vividly, there was this one moment, I don't know how old I was. I'm going to go with eight or nine. And I was watching, um, the fly the the original obviously the original the fly and at the end of that movie you know most of the movie is pretty campy you know you got the guy with the giant fly head in the suit you know you know with his choppy you know he's got the fly kind of like crab fingers or whatever 
But there's a scene at the end of that very end of the movie where he tries to, you know, use the machine again and tries to turn himself back into a human. And instead he becomes a fly body with a human head. And the love interest, the woman in the film is like looking around for him. Like, where did he go? Where did he go? And then you just hear like, help me. Yeah. Help me. <laughs> and she sees him and he's in a spider web and the spider mm. is crawling toward him as his little, his little human head is screaming for help. And then she ends up crushing both spider and fly and human with like this giant rock or whatever. I can't remember what she hit it with. And that was like, whoa, like it was a kind of a moment for me because I was like shocked more so than I'd ever been from watching, you know, the blob or whatever. And, um, and I think that was kind of like a moment where I realized that horror has real life consequences <laughs> in a way mm-hmm. where like, um, it's not just about the campy, like, you know, you never really, really felt that bad for the people that got eaten by the blob because, you know, I don't know, it was just too weird to really have it, you know, affect you. But there's something about her crying and hitting her, her husband or whatever, her boyfriend with this rock while the spider was about to juice him. And uh, that, yeah, it really stuck with me. So that was, that was probably one of the moments I would point to and say, um, that was kind of a, maybe a wake up moment for me that horror was an adrenaline rush that um, I liked, you know, and that's one of those things like, it's like if you're a rock climber and maybe the first time you're, maybe the first time you go on an intense hike or whatever, you're like, oh man, I love this. Like, I want this rush again. I think for me, when I saw that movie or when I saw the blob, you know, original blob or whatever, I was like, oh man, I want this rush again. And uh, for whatever reason, it was just something that I gravitated toward. Hmm. Yeah. And then I think I've only duplicated that same, you know, chasing that rush, if you will, by, you know, reading horror novels at a very young age, reading, gobbling up, Dean Koontz books and Stephen King books and all that stuff. And always like, but I was never really, um, you know, I was never really became like a movie, like a lot of horror people, horror writers, they're really into all like the slasher movies and they had the most obscure horror movie references. And they, all they do is watch horror movies. I don't really, I'm not really much of a horror movie guy, but I, you know, grew up absorbing horror books for sure. Trying to chase that same adrenaline rush that I got when, uh, when I saw that dude crushed by the rock. Yeah. Hmm. Makes sense. It's kind of a literary version of the movie version of it. You know, you always have that one first experience, and then there's that adrenaline rush and that uh, that chase after that. And as far as the fly is concerned, I would say mission accomplished because it sounds like that's exactly what they were going for. Like, a, you think it's, it's there's the twist again. You think it's um, just going to be a happy ending, like oh, she sees that he's the fly and she saves him from the spider, but she ends up killing both of them. So yeah, I think they were going for shock value there. Right. And they got it. And I, and I, you know, and maybe even that's something I carry through with my fiction. I don't know, but yeah, I, I, I do like there being, I do like their feeling, uh, giving the reader the feeling that there's very real, you know, real life consequences to the horror that is going on. You know, it's not just fantasy, you know, it's, it's ground and based in reality. Hmm. Dean Koontz and Stephen King, I'm guessing that was later in your childhood or maybe early teens. Um, I, I wouldn't expect that from like an eight or nine year old. I think, I can't remember which came first, Strangers or Watchers, but those two were kind of, you know, those are two cornerstone books that I think I probably read when I was 11 or 12, maybe. And then I kind of went to Stephen King from there. 
And, uh, you know, probably, I was probably like, you know, in 13, 12, 13, and started reading Stephen King and, and I remember reading The Shining and to go back to that idea of like a positive, you know, adrenaline rush or whatever. Um, you know, I remember reading The Shining and it being it's still to this day, the only book that I ever had to put down because I was so scared. You know, I remember, mm-hmm. I remember very vividly, you know, being in my bedroom and reading that book and reading the scene where, you know, the woman in. 237 comes out of the bathtub mm-hmm. and I had to put the book down because I was terrified. And now that we can explore why this is, I don't know if I have the other answers, but you know, again, it was a terrifying uh, adrenaline rush, but it was also a very positive, terrifying adrenaline rush. It was something that I craved more of throughout my childhood and, you know, kept and just started voraciously reading all the horror I could. And it's weird because some of that stuff, even back then, you know, um, you know, Stephen King and Clive Barker and Dean Koontz were very, obviously very mainstream horror. And when you start going down the rabbit hole, if you will, or, or, you know, you kind of find yourself reading some things that you probably should not be reading when you're a kid. And cause you're just like, you don't know any better. And you're just like, well, what's this, what's this, what's this. And there's a lot of trial and error before you kind of realize, you know, that not every, not every writer or, uh, you know, is creating that same adrenaline, you know, rush of excitement. It's just kind of more like, you know, disturbing or in different ways that don't excite you. So it's, you know, I don't know, it's very particular, I think, as to what affects different people's psyches, you know, what gets, what gives them a positive rush and what gives them a negative, you know, experience. Right. It's part of what we're here to figure out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You mentioned these creature features and Godzilla going back, going back to early childhood. Do you remember there ever being a dividing line where prior to uh, whatever experience, you know, was, was there actually anything horror related in your early life that actually did scare you or was it always exciting to you? I feel like I spent a lot of ch- my childhood without any guidance, without any like parental or guardianship guide. Like I was kind of, I kind of was like alone all the time. Like, you know, my parents worked and my dad worked two jobs and, and yeah, I just was kind of like on my own a lot, you know, uh, I would make myself breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I would just kind of be left my own devices. And the point of that is to say that I do recall a lot of times when I would just be like, so terrified they wouldn't want to leave my bed because I was afraid that there was, I was convinced there was somebody in the house with me. Mm-hmm. Or I remember one night I got home after a trip, uh, like a baseball, you know, trip or whatever. My team went and I was probably like 12 and nobody was home and I didn't know where anybody was. And this is not, you have to remember is there were no cell phones. There wasn't internet. There was like, you couldn't call, you couldn't call your mom and say, where, she, where are you? You know, because, right. and so, yeah, and I just remember kind of coming home and the lights didn't work. Whoa. And I remember sort of sitting in the living room in the dark and not really wanting to go anywhere else in the house because I was kind of scared of what, what was kind of in all these, like what was going on. And I, and I felt like if I just didn't move, <laughs> then nothing would bad would happen. Cause whoever, you know, if there was somebody in, in the house, they couldn't see me or, you know, and I was, so that was kind of a weird moment, but like there was never really as a child, I grew up, you know, pretty normally, you know, I went to a, very normal high school. I went to a very normal, I lived in a very normal, normal suburb of, um, outside, outside Detroit. I mean, that's, you know, obviously as a child, you have, you have traumatic moments, 
like injuries or the dog getting hit by a car or, you know, a horrible fight with your parents or one of your parents or whatever the case might be. But I don't know if those contributed to me necessarily wanting to write horror or not. I just feel like those are just moments of being a human being and, you know, growing up. Mm. So, but no, I, I, I honestly, I don't, and I hate to disappoint, but there was never really, I was never like locked in a closet for, you know, two nights or whatever, you know, while, you know, or anything like that, or I never had, I was never covered in, you know, bugs and nobody ever dumped a bucket of blood on me or anything. It was just kind of, um, mm-hmm. I had a pretty normal childhood and I just, I don't know. Cause I, I you know, cause I, I got your guys pre-interview questions and I did really think about it and I was like, geez, I don't, I don't really know why I'm so attracted to, to horror, why I was early on, uh, in my life and why I am now, you know, I was home recently visiting my family and my sister said something kind of interesting to me. She said, I was over Christmas or whatever. And she said, and we were talking about my writing and she said, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> I'm like, why? Like I'm actually doing pretty well with the writing stuff. She goes, no, I feel, she goes, no, I feel bad for you because your mind is filled with all this darkness. Oh. And I was like, don't feel bad for me. I'm having a blast. Yeah. Right. And so it's, but the question is why, to my, you know, to someone like my sister, is it like, oh, you know, I feel pity for you, and for me, I'm like, this is great, you know. I don't, and I don't know if I have a great. I have some ideas as to why that is, but I don't know if I have like a great answer to why that is. You know what I mean? No, the correct answer to why that is. Mm. While we're on the topic, what do you you say? You have some thoughts. What, what are your thoughts? You know, I think that um, I'm only going to speak to horror writers because I can't really horror filmmakers. I think have a different thing but i i think for whatever reason we have a lot of empathy which sounds kind of weird given what we do to characters in our stories but i think that the only way to really write about those kind of extreme experiences is if you have very strong empathy for humanity and for the different types of people that you come across in life and not necessarily sympathy, but definitely empathy. And I think for, you know, for me anyway, I think it's one of the reasons I like horror because I like going to those extremes, those extreme emotional moments, extreme psychological moments. To me, it's more expressive. It's like painting with a bolder brush and brighter colors. Mm. You know, science fiction tends to be very much about, kind of ideas and fantasy tends to be very much about escapism. And I think horror tends to be more about people and it tends Mm -hmm. to be more about emotion and psychology. And for me, that's why I think I gravitate toward it. And it's kind of ties in probably to that earlier comment about that rush that I was talking about, wanting that extreme feeling again and wanting to explore other people having those extreme feelings. I'm probably more focused on character than a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of, than many horror writers. And I only say that because, not to pat myself on the back, because I don't necessarily think it's a good thing all the time, because I I have a lot of readers who were reviewers who will read my stuff and be like, oh my God, like it's so slow, or let's, you know, or let's get to the horror part and all that. And they get frustrated because I'm like talking about, you know, the background of this family before I get to the creatures and the, the, you know, that are attacking their boat. But for me, that's part of the experience is I want to create these 
these three dimensional characters who have backgrounds, who have lives, who have loved and lost and, and who are complex emotional beings, and then put them in an extreme situation and kind of watch and see what happens. For me, it's not so much about the darkness. You know, my house is not filled with satanic memorabilia and I don't have, you know, dead babies paintings on my walls. You know, I have a very normal house and a very normal child. I'm all in all, I'm a pretty normal guy, but I do love exploring the depths of like the human psyche. And I think that's what I kind of mean by the empathy part. It's like, that's Mm -hmm. something that I'm attracted to and Mm -hmm. I'm attracted to learning more about and, and studying that more. And, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think why, one of the reasons why maybe I'm drawn to horror. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two thoughts that I have on that. Um, one, do you find yourself drawn to extremes in general, not even relating to horror? No, I don't leave my house, man. I, no, I, um, <laughs> no, that's the thing. I'm actually just like a real, like I said, I'm kind of a homebody. Like I play video games, I listen to music, I read, I write. You know, I'm not in any way, shape, or form a goth. I never have been. I don't go to, metal concerts i'm pretty vanilla so no i would I, I i don't think so i think it's just um i think it's much more internal there's so there's a couple different ways that we could approach it one it would be if you were somebody who was very attracted to extremes in general then you could say i find some affinity there it sounds like it might be the opposite that because i'm not that way i kind of like exploring that there's one of my favorite quotes is uh, be regular and orderly in your daily life that you may be violent and original in your work. Mm. Oh yeah. That's a great quote. Do you know, do you remember who said it or wrote it? Uh, Gustav Flaubert, I believe. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah. Flaubert. Yeah. I only happen to know that because I like that quote so much. Yeah, I have no qu- idea who a, that is. It's a great quote. Gustav Flaubert. Yeah. He wrote, uh, I can't remember the titles, but he wrote a couple, um, Flaubert, he wrote on, anyway, it's going to bug me now, but uh, yeah, he wrote one famous, he had one very famous book that I can't remember the title of off the top of my head, but, um, and I'm sure he wrote others that were less famous. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's like I said, I don't, to, my world is very internalized. You know, I'm a bit of an agoraphobe. I don't like crowds. I really, like, I don't like movie theaters at all. I don't go to like, you never catch me at like a, one of those outdoor concerts and I'd not really, and I, and I don't really like going outside much. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a good, but I don't really feel when I'm, exp- but I, I don't honestly, when I'm writing about these situations, I never really feel like I'm, uh, you know, filling a hole or, you know, or a void in my life at all. I just feel like I'm, I'm just kind of in my lab working on things that I love working on. And, but did, but to that, and I do think, you know, external experiences definitely feed those internal, you know, out feed that internal output. Like you got to have context, you got to meet people, you have to experience different things so that you can create more energy for, you know, your creativity. And so I, I it's, it's, I do force myself out and I do, you know, force myself to travel and, and go to those things. But, but, you know, I think a lot of writers are that way. And I, you know, mean, meaning internal and not necessarily, you know, socially awkward and all those things. Like when you go to a writer convention, it's very, 
you know, it's, it's a lot of guys and girls sitting around feeling sort of awkward about themselves. And so it's, um, mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's a thing where like, if you're, I don't know what the connection between exploring extreme psychological and emotional situations and being very internalized. I don't know what that connection is, but I do feel like it is a common one. Well, it kind of ties into the other question I wanted to ask, which is, you know, the first question I asked is how do you, do you find yourself drawn to extremes in general? The second question I wanted to ask is, do you find yourself drawn to drama in general? No, I don't know what you, I don't know hundred percent what you mean by drama, but interpersonal drama. If I'm being totally honest, I would say that I do. And if you ever go on, <laughs> if you ever, if you ever visit this little website called Twitter, you'll see that there's a lot of every day, there's a different writer drama where they're, everybody's up in arms about one thing or another. And it's like, they can't just be cool for a day. But, but, but I do, I would say that my personality is drawn toward creating drama where there might not be. I would also say that my personality is drawn toward, for lack of a better way to put it, negativity. I'm more comfortable when things are bad than I am when things are good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not that I am extreme about it, but I, de- I there's definitely a comfort there. There's a comfort to being like depressed versus always being like up and positive. Maybe it's an, an element of, you know, it's a longer drop you know, from the positive, you know, branch, but I'm not a negative, externally a negative person, if that makes sense. Like I don't, you know, around the house with my wife and my kid or whatever, or when I'm with friends, I'm actually a very positive, high energy kind of guy, much to their dismay sometimes. But, (laughs) but yeah, but I definitely, but as far as like internally or emotionally or psychologically speaking, yeah, I'm definitely more comfortable with feeling like it's me against the world sometimes. And, and it's also drives me you know, maybe I need that drive. Maybe I self-create it. But yeah, I would say I'm drawn to drama. I think that would be a fair statement. Yeah. Any idea why? I have a very, um, I don't know how to phrase. I don't know what word to use that won't offend anybody. I can't even talk anymore without thinking <laughs> I'm going to offend somebody with every goddamn word I say. But because you never, it's, it's like every, the whole world is on eggshells these days. With um. Sometimes I find that I have to say something two or three times before I find the right phrasing for it. Okay, I'll just like put it. I'll start laying out facts, and that'll help. Like I was diagnosed at a very young age with chronic depression, which essentially means not bipolar, but I have. It's something I will live with my entire life, and sometimes it will be moderate. Sometimes it will won't be there at all, or I won't know that it's there at all, feel it, and then sometimes it'll get clinically bad. And it took me, you know, I would, you know, I think close to like 10 years of intense therapy, you know, every medication under the sun, hospitalizations, you know, before I really was, was um, given the right tools and built up enough strength internally to be able to handle those things on my, as I move forward, handle uh, handle that um, disease on my own without needing medication, not needing ther- outside therapy. And so that's kind of what I do. I self, you know, I self-regulate and I self-medicate and I kind of like, and I know how to put my mind in certain situations so that um, 
if I feel like something, if I, you know, if I know I'm going down one of those hills, I kind of know now how to deal with it. Whereas maybe when I was in my twenties or thirties, I didn't. So the point I'm making of all that is to say that, you know, I think it's, it's hard to kind of like nutshell where all that comes from as well. Is it all part of the same chemical, you know, influence of your brain that drives you towards creating these kind of like extreme empathetic moments or that also may drive you into depression? Is it over imagination? Is it overstimulation? Is it overthinking everything too much? And therefore like, you know, once you leave that box and you start thinking about all the of death and the afterlife and the cosmos and the expansion of the universe and how small we all are and the insignificance of humanity and all those things that Lovecraft and Legati got into. Um, (laughs) It can get really, you know, it it can get, if you're not careful, it can drive you into the ground with depression. And I think in some ways, I think a lot of horror writers and horror movie creators or whoever, I think are, it's their way of expressing those feelings and maybe that's part of what I do as well, but you know, but as far as like where that all comes from, where that all generates from, why we are the way we are, why my brain is wired the way it is, I don't, I don't know those answers, you know. Okay, um, it's funny that you brought up depression because previously, when you were talking about being positive and how sometimes other horror authors, you know. They, read that differently or, or don't expect that. I was thinking to myself, depressed people are often outwardly positive. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you went right to that. So I think it's funny that this episode seems to be a, almost a therapy session for myself. Cause I'm, I'm hearing a lot of shit and just nodding the whole time. Like, yes, <laughs> yes. Check the box, check the box. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a bit of a mask, right? It's a, yeah, it's a bit it of, is. It's a bit I, of a show. The same thing. You know, it's whenever you're out in social and public, you put on the mask. You just, you know, you, you have that, uh, everything is positive and let's talk about current events and happy stuff. And it's not like a worry or a concern that I'll spiral into depression by bringing up dark things or depressing things. It's that you, you almost subconsciously think no one wants to hear this shit. So I'm not going to bring it up. It's always on my mind, but I'm not going to talk about it because no one wants to hear it. And you know what? The tr- that's actually right. They don't. That's the thing I've learned over the years is nobody wants to hear <laughs> your shit. And, uh, and they don't. They don't. Well, especially if they're struggling with similar things, they don't want to tap yeah. into that, man. Because not everybody is, not everybody is really, and you know, not everyone can handle it. That's exactly what I was just about to say is I, my personal experience with that had been that you and I had a little conversation before uh, the podcast. So you knew I have also had some background in therapy and I wrote a book on some of the tools that I've learned from counseling and, and 12 step stuff. And I think my ability now to talk about these things where I wasn't comfortable talking about them before was because I didn't have the tools. I didn't know what to say or how to deal with these topics. It it was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's why people don't want to hear what you're going through is because they don't know how to, to process it themselves. Yeah. And yeah, and you don't want to be a buzzkill. You bring up those, those emotions of, I don't like talking about these things. And then it's, it's not a 100% happy conversation anymore. Right. But part of the reason that you and I are able to have this conversation right now is because we've had some experience with this, or at least I have, and I am now comfortable talking about this stuff because I've got the background. You know what I'm saying? Whereas if I didn't, then yeah, maybe I would change the topic to something else, but I don't need to because I'm not uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I mean, I can point to one instance in particular where I remember I was at a writer convention, and I said, and I was with, I was at a table with a with a couple guys, and I said, "Let me ask you guys a question. Don't you ever feel like really empty after these things? Like, don't you just feel like you've been emptied out, and there's nothing positive left?" <laughs> and they both stared at me like I just like slapped their baby, like. <laughs> Like they were like, why are you saying this out loud? You're not supposed to say it out loud. And no, uh, it's and a I good felt, thing. Everything is good. And shut up. Yeah, it's and good. I was like, yeah, you know what? I was like, you know what? Let's let me look at. Let's let's figure. Let's get all get beers and uh, let's mm-hmm. forget I said anything because it was like the most uncomfortable moment where like we'd been all ruckusy and like it was kind of the thing where I was like, oh, I'm feeling good enough with these guys where I think I can maybe <laughs> say something like this. And they were just like, both of them were just like shocked. Nope. And, um, and I know why they were shocked, but, it, but yeah, so it's right. It's like some people just don't, you know, they want to ignore it until they're back home and they can internalize it the way they internalize it or whatever. But, you know, it's also the other point I was thinking when you were talking was for some people sitting around a table talking about all the ways someone could die mm-hmm. would be like the most depressing conversation in the world. But you mm-hmm. put eight horror writers at a table and you're going to, it, and you're going to think they were, you know, talking about the time that, you know, sheared a sheep in college and put it in the Dean's office. Like we'll all be laughing our asses <laughs> off. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's kind of, that's, and that's, and that I think where that, what, what that means is it's like, it's a, it's a, it's, it's therapeutic. It's, you know, cathartic. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's talk about all this dark shit that's in our head and let's explore those things to the point where we are comfortable, we can feel comfortable with it, or we can turn it into a positive thing, or we can turn it into a fun, high energy thing. Therefore, the darkness won't consume us. We'll, we will be the ones in charge of the darkness, you know? And I mm-hmm. think, um, and I think that's might be tight. That, that might be why, horror writing exists in the first place. And it might be why people love watching horror movies, you know, why they're so popular and uh, horror movies are much more popular than horror fiction. But I, you know, I think, you know, that why do people love horror movies so much? Why do people love being scared? I think it's cathartic. It's that whole like thing. It's like, well, if I want to turn this dark energy that I've already got going on in my head into something positive and entertaining, that feels good. That's like, isn't it? And to your point- And something you can control. And it's right. And it's empowering. And so I think that's one possibility, sure. Going back to some of the stuff that we talked about in your childhood, so briefly to touch on strangers and watchers, what did you like about those? One of the things I like about horror is I like that I like the um I like all the possibilities. Uh, I like how open the world is. I like that anything, literally anything can happen in a horror novel. And science fiction, there are rules. In fantasy, there are rules. You know, there's guy, there's, there's, there are boundaries on those sandboxes. With horror, it's kind of like, man, anything, literally anything goes. It's almost like comic books, like anything goes. And um, I think with Watchers and Strangers, I think reading those early Dean Koontz novels, one was I had that feeling of, of the world sort of opening up a little bit in my mind, in my young mind, like there's a fantastical element to life that is being shown here that I'm eager to to learn more of. I also think with Kuntz in particular, and now it's kind of become a trope of his, but I think it was watchers. I think it's about the, the dog. It's like a dog and then there's the creature and then there's the kid. And I think it, I think it also tapped into that, like um, that empathy 
I'm going to tell you a very scary story that is way outside the bounds of reality as you know it, but I'm also going to make you care about these characters while I'm telling it to you. And I think that was what Koontz did with those early books in a horrifying you know, way. And it was that kind of amalgam of all those different things that I think was really attractive to me. And I remember when I read The Talisman, uh, and I read it when I was 14, so a little bit later, but I remember having that same feeling. Stephen King sort of just blowing the doors off of what I thought of as reality or what was possible with fiction and what was what were the the there are no boundaries to what can be done with the story. I think that was what excited me the most about those early experiences. I hope I answered your question. I, I tend to ramble. Well, what I was getting mainly out of the stuff for Dean Koontz was two things, open world, no rules and empathy for the characters. Let's come back to the talisman here in a minute. There were some other childhood questions we could run through. Um, did you participate in Halloween when you were a kid? Yeah, but I didn't like it. <laughs> and okay. that's yeah, and you and I know that's a shocker because horror people are like Halloween's they're like, you know, Christmas or whatever. But um I'm not big on uh man, I don't like holidays. Okay. I don't like decorations. I don't like people dressing up. I don't like being forced to be with people to celebrate a very specific thing. I mean, I don't mind like a birthday party, I guess, but but Halloween was, I did participate and I was a little kid. Obviously I was dragged and my parents took me around, but it wasn't, I was never a huge fan. It always kind of freaked me out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I was a little, little kid and my um, brother, my oldest brother dressed up as the Hulk. He painted his face <laughs> and skin green and wore, you know, a oh, no. has he not seen James Bond? Never paint your whole body. Yeah, right, right. And I remember going downstairs, like I was all going to the kitchen to get a cookie or something. And my brother was in the kitchen in his Hulk thing. And he turned to me and he like did the whole Hulk thing. He was like, Rawr! you know, like that. <laughs> and I fucking pissed myself. I mean, I was, <laughs> it was this, it not, not only did it terrify me, like I was like, but it traumatized me. Like I was, I would like refuse to go out. I refuse to leave my room. Another thing like that happened when I was, and this just occurred to me, but I think around that same age, one of my brothers had a giant um, rubber uh, hand that was like a, you know, that was like an alien, like a predator kind of hand with like the long fingers and the black nails and whatever. And I remember one time he opened my door and stuck this <laughs> hand through the door. God. And I was, I started scraping it against the, door and i screamed <laughs> well this is this is where it, you gotta be you gotta be always you gotta be careful who you scare i screamed as loud as i could ran to the door and kicked it shut as hard as i no, could no. <laughs> <laughs> i saw that coming right on his hand yeah and i was like ow i was joking and he, and he screamed and all that stuff and i was like i didn't care i was like shouldering into that door as hard i mean i was just a little kid so no halloween was never like a really fun positive thing for me when i i have a i have a kid i raised a kid who's 22 now but i love doing halloween with him as a parent but as a kid no i was not into not into it i think i think i probably stopped when i was like 11 or 12 right. okay. yeah it sounds to me like i, I think i might have picked up on something just how you're describing holidays in general and it's there is almost that feeling in every holiday of 
captivity or necessary captivity. Like this is the thing we are doing today. This is the rule. So you have to be here. Yeah. I don't even like, that doesn't mean I can tell you as an adult, I hate holidays because it means nobody's working because I'm a workaholic and I'm a, like I said earlier, I think I'm a very driven guy and it drives me like, I don't like weekends because it's like, oh, I'm not going to hear from anybody this weekend because it's everyone's no one's working like why isn't everybody working i'm working and um but yeah but that's a little bit of a different thing but but yeah but i generally speaking i don't and i try real hard man like you know raising a kid you know i like forced myself to get the christmas tree like i forced myself and i've because he'd be like why don't we have decorations like at mom's house i'm like oh no we're gonna have decorations and no we're gonna do it yeah, and uh, luckily my wife has uh, she does that stuff now for I don't have to worry about it. But um, I don't. Yeah, it would be interesting to explore why. But I just don't like the whole like I guess the pretense of forced joy or captive, like you said, uh, Chris, captive joy. I just mm-hmm. I know Valentine's. It's they're all Hallmark holidays to me. I don't know for whatever reason I've just never cared and <laughs> so. I sound like a total asshole, but that's just the way. <laughs> uh, any scary dreams when you were a kid or repet- repetitive dreams, maybe teeth falling out, falling. No, I have, I have, I have, um, as an adult, I have recurring anxiety dreams. I have a lot of performance driven dreams, meaning, um, I have a lot of dreams where like, I'll be like on a professional hockey team. And hmm. I'll be on the bench. I'm not a good hockey player. <laughs> what am I going to do when I get out there? Or I'll be on like a, a baseball team or I'll be on a stage and I'm supposed to go out there and, and I'm like, but I don't know how to play guitar. And I'm just like faking it. I get those dreams pretty regularly. Like <laughs> say probably once or twice a week. And they're always very frustrating. Oh God, they're frustrating. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and like, and I get weird dreams about being lost or, or, or like, um, perfect example. I had a dream where, um, I was supposed to get on air. I was supposed to get on an airplane, and my ba- I left my bag in this like house, and I went back to get my bag. And the guy, there was like a guy there, like a valet, and I'm like, "Handy my bag, I'm leaving." And he's like, "Oh yeah, no problem. Follow me." And we went up these stairs, and then we went down some stairs, and then we were outside. And then he was like sitting on the grass. I'm like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, that's right. You need your bag." I'm like, "Yeah, I need my bag." <laughs> and so he was like, "Okay, let's go." And we like went. And he kept doing that. He just kept wandering. Like we were at a, ended up mm-hmm. in a pool. And I was like, dude, where's my bag? And then finally, I was like, I'm just going to get it myself. <laughs> and I went and got the bag. This is all true. This is all the dream I had last night. And I got my bag and I went to the airport. Though they were closing the gate. And I'm like, no, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And they're like, oh, great. Come on. Come on. We got you. And I was like, oh, great. I made the plane. This is great. This is going to have a happy ending. And then I was in like this terminal. And they lost your luggage. No, we got a train and we're on the train with the people, all the people who are supposed to be getting the plane. And then was like, do you know where we get off? And I'm like, no, I don't know where we get off and nobody knew where to get off. And so we're stuck on this train and it just kind of went in this endless loop. So I never got on the actual, actually got on the plane. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that There's means. But as a child, there, like, like waiting for a plan and or purpose, but never getting that answer. Maybe. I don't know. That's yeah. That's an interesting one night back. I have, and I have a lot of that where I'm lost and I'm, I'm never getting to, and I'm very frustrated because I'm trying to get to a specific end point. See, I work in IT, so I can relate to that a lot. There's like, I have to fix thing. Where's the information to fix thing? Oh, we never got that. Well, yeah. Well, what do I do now? Now you just wait and uh, be upset 
it's very purgatorial, <laughs> right? Like you're yeah. just like, yeah. And I think, um, but as a kid, and I'm trying to reach to remember, I don't remember ever having an issue with dreams or bad dreams or anything like that or recurring dreams. Most of my fears were when I was awake. I mean, I was also kind of a wild kid. I got in a lot of trouble. Okay. And I got, I was, and I got hurt a lot. I was in the hospital a lot. Hmm. I would do really dumb stuff all the time. Jumping bikes off racks and, and stuffs. Yeah. I mean, I broke, I can't tell you how many bones I broke. Cause I, you know, I've got multiple concussions, stitches in my head. I broke, knocked my teeth out. I broke my thumb. I broke my arm. I broke my leg. Okay. You broke a lot of stuff. Oh, no, I was, yeah, I'm not even exaggerating. I was just, for whatever reason, I was always getting hurt. I was always doing dumb stuff. I was just kind of wild. I just was sort of like constantly getting, you know, I almost got expelled like twice. But yeah, dreams were never something that I don't, as far as I can remember, never really something that I had an issue with. Well, that's at least one good thing (laughs) of of this list. Uh, Let me flip the question around. Was there ever a time in childhood where you felt completely safe or calm or bliss? No, I don't think so. I I think most of my childhood, I was very much on edge. No, no, okay. I don't think I. No, I mean, I had a. I don't want to drag my parents into it, but I did unusual relationship with my parents. You know, I just you know. Um, but yeah, no, nothing. I never really felt that way comfortable. Never really felt wholly comfortable. Uh, even when I was like, I think what happened was um, it went from kind of uh, feeling um, uh, secluded or excluded, depending on how you want to look at it, to um, maybe mild depression to, I think, acting out and trying and like over overdoing it becoming a big personality and getting in trouble a lot and all that stuff i think was stemming from the fact of it was almost like a rebellion against feeling the opposite of that you know feeling that right compensation yeah and then when i got to my late teens crushing debilitating depression that lasted i would say from when i was probably 17 on that went untreated for a decade it's, uh, you know, it wasn't until I was in my, um, 30, my, well, my late twenties where it got to a point where I had to get, you know, get treatment. So I would say for, for a full decade though, went untreated. So yeah, no, I don't think I've ever had that. Like I didn't start feeling good about myself as a person until I was like in my forties mm. and now I'm, you know, older than that, we'll just say. And, um, and now I'm very comfortable in my own skin, but uh, but yeah, it took no, it took. I would say the first four, 40 years of my life were kind of a unsteady, you know, being on an unsteady cart for sure. Mm-hmm. I can relate. Um, mm-hmm. Number of similar things. One question that I hadn't asked uh, for the childhood section: Did you have anybody else in your friends friends group or family who were fans of horror? No. Okay. Yeah, it's no. usually a no at that point. Cause yeah, no, I was, nobody, uh, uh, was into it. And my, um, my, you know, my friends and I watched the like, core movies together, but you know, like, um, but not, you know, it wasn't like a thing and my family, um, none of, no, none of the members of my family are, horror I don't want to say, well, definitely not horror fans. No, but I was not even really, you know, creative as, as far as like career wise, Dick, they're not, you know, writers and architects and artists or anything like that. They're just 
practical people. Concrete. Yeah. And so I'm kind of this weird anomaly nobody gets <laughs> in my family. Uh, let's see. All right. So you also said that you didn't have um, really any like horror fans as friends in, in your teenage years either. Um, I'm guessing didn't participate in Halloween because you said you stopped it at 11. Yeah. Um, any scary dreams in your teens? No, man. Like I said, my teens were um, kind of rough. Like I... Um, you know, it was like I said, it was a lot of acting out. It was a lot of getting in trouble. It was a lot of drinking at a very young age. It was a lot of um, not coming home for days at a time. Subconsciously, I think it was all just, I was trying so hard to extrovert all these kind of emotions that I never really looked internally much when I was a teenager. And then, not, and then when I got, like I said, when I hit a very specific point in my life where everything that all that energy turned into just like crippling depression, it all kind of crashed down. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, not, I can't even, not every question is going to hit. I'm just, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to give it like, an, I'm trying to give it the old college try to see if there was like, I'm actually mm-hmm. thinking about it, but no, it was, um, no, everything was pretty external during those years. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a time you felt completely calm or safe or bliss in your teenage years? No. Um, actually that kind of, I don't know. Is it for the teenage? So let's jump into adult. Well, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, I don't uh, No, I was going to say, I don't, I mean, I'm going to say there were moments of happiness, you know, obviously, I mean, everybody has good days and bad days or good moments and bad right. moments, but no, I would no that, that like bliss thing. No. Right. <laughs> that bliss thing for <laughs> concept. Right. Yeah. No, everything was always a little bit uncomfortable. Have you had a moment like that in your adult years? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely, I'm, yeah, I feel like I said, I think you mentioned is like, once I kind of got to a point where I was in control, felt more in control of everything um, internally and externally, things definitely smoothed out. And I became, I kind of knew who I was, you know, where I didn't really know who I was for like the first right. 40 years of my life, I'd say. So it, at this moment in your adult life, when you was there, it, was there a specific moment, or you're just talking in general? A specific moment for what? Sorry, in your adult life, when you felt calm or safe or at bliss. I don't think it was like a specific like moment. Moment. I think it was just. Um, I think it was more of a realization. You one day just kind of you know you're kind of going through your routine, and you kind of realize that oh man, I think I'm actually happy. Mm. You know what I mean? I when you learn to stop giving a fuck so much, I wonder. I think it's part of it. Yeah. And I think, like I said, I think <laughs> the biggest thing for me was knowing who I was and being comfortable with myself. And I think that comes from a lot of different things. I think I raised a child through very difficult personal years, very difficult personal years. But I've had, you know, I've had a wonderful relationship with, you know, my wife. Now we've been together for 14 years. So, all those things are very, my kid, my son's older. I, there's a lot of stabilization. I heard, you know, I am doing what I love career-wise. So all that stuff is very stabilizing. So, you know, um, but it doesn't mean I don't have, I don't still deal with those chronic depression moments or days as I do. But, um, but, it, but I do feel like, I think there was a moment where I was like, I knew who I was. I knew what I wanted and I knew how I wanted to do it. Meaning I knew who I wanted to be surrounded by. I knew how I wanted to position myself, you know, and I think there's a lot to say. Uh, there's a lot of comfort that comes with knowing who you are and knowing what you want out of life. 
Mm-hmm. It sounds like something that it, it's not, a, it sounds like a very easy thing to accomplish, but I, in my world anyway, or my life anyway, it was, it was a very difficult thing to accomplish. Like I knew when I was 10 years old that I wanted to be a professional writer, but it wasn't until I actually was able to make that a reality that like there was a certain level of comfort, but yeah, I would, but yeah, I just think it got to a point in life where you've gone through so much and you've gone through all the therapy and you've gone through all the bad ups and downs and you've had all these experiences both personally and with the people around you that you just become comfortable because you kind of know nothing can really surprise you anymore and you know where you're going you know what you want and you know how you're going to get there so i don't know i think all that just adds up to um to that kind of like calm bliss feeling well, I think there are two good things to say here. One is, you know, that this is a perfect example of, you know, they say that, you know, stability in childhood is important because not having stability in childhood has lo- lifelong effects, basically. And it's unstable, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, but point being that even after he was, you know, turned 18 and, you know, going out and doing other things on his own, it took him. 10, another 10, 15, 20, 30 years to really get to a place where he was comfortable. You know, it, when I say lifelong effects, I, potentially there are some that will continue, you know, even until his, his older age. But the point being that even if it took 40 years for him to get to a stable position, that's, that's something that, mm-hmm. and then the other thing to say is that it's also a good example of that phrase. It does get better. You know, that mm-hmm. trying to tell a child who is, either, you know, 16 or 18 or 20 and struggling with the things that they're struggling with, that it gets better seems like, you know, it's a trite statement and it's, it's very difficult to, to accept that when you're in a bad place, even though it might be true, it's just, it's really hard to accept that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having an opportunity to talk about this and say, you know, yeah, it maybe it did take until my, you know, late twenties to get the counseling and, you know, thirties to start fixing my life. And I, cause I I'm in the same boat. It's the same is true for me as well, but it's not bullshit. You know, when we say it does get better, it does, it's going to take a while. It, it's not going to be easy, but it can get better. You know, it's, we're not, we're not fucking with you. You know, it really does. Yeah. So. One of the things I took away from therapy which really helped me a lot. And it's actually, in, I wrote a book called Don't Let Them Get You Down, which is not horror. It's, um, or it's not a genre anyway. It's, it's a book about depression and anxiety primarily. One of the things I, and I referenced it in the book is, is the whole get better thing. It does get better thing, but is, is not even think about it as like, Hey, you know, it, things could get better in like a year or in five years or in a decade. What I, you know, one of the things I took was like, don't look at time as, in that it's years or it's decades or it's this big ball called life that's sort of like ethereal. Look at it as in like minute to minute and hour to hour. Like just get through, like one of the things my therapy therapist just always say to me was like, don't think about it as getting into the next day. Think about getting to the next hour mm-hmm. because the next hour might be better than this hour. The next, you know, the next, you know, minute might be better than this minute. So if you, in other words, you, it's almost digest, you know, it's like much more control. It's all that about control again, right? It's like, it's like, you know, it's not like some ethereal mystery fantasy land at some point down the road, things are going to be okay. It's like, Hey, just get through. If you're having a rough hour, get through that hour. Don't focus on the next, you know, just, just get to the next 
10 minutes or whatever it is. the next right thing. Yeah. And then, you know, you might start feeling a little bit better. And if you don't, then wait for the next dose. They take it one hour at a time. And those little bite-sized increments of like, um, were much more palatable for me. And I was much more, okay, that I can do. Like, I don't know if I could feel this way. If I know I'm going to feel this way for the next couple of days or the next couple of weeks or the next couple of years, I'm not going to make it. But if you're telling me I can just like get through hour by hour, I can, it was almost like a way to fool your brain. You know, that I feel like I can do. And it was a weird, for whatever reason, it really worked for me. It was something that resonated. Well, it's with reframing. Me. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 that is a good point. It's, you know, breaking into, break it into manageable pieces. That's right. one tool. Yeah. And then the other is do the next right thing. So once you've broken it into a man- manageable piece, rant, oh yeah. <laughs> once you've broken it into a manageable piece, then do the next thing, you know, and then once you're done with that, then do the next one. And which kind of goes back to you talking about being a workaholic and that's kind of, drilling down on that, just constantly doing whatever is the next right thing. Well, that's exactly right. And in a way it's, it's the way I, I am in my professional life because I don't really, and I had to, this is something I've been working on. Even now I'm still working on myself, you know, when I'm 50, but is, um, I, I don't enjoy victories. I don't enjoy successes. I'm always like, okay, great. What's now what? Mm-hmm. Now what's next? And what you how do I get to that next? Enjoy the victory. Yeah, exactly. You're like, okay, yeah, well, how do I get to the next, next good, rung but- of the ladder, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to take a more like approach of like, hey, I'm going to enjoy this. Something good happened. I'm going to kind of I'm going to kind of marinate in this a little bit and not just be like, okay, great. Next, next, next. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, to your point, it's 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 a it's it's not an it's not a healthy way to think, um, and I'm trying to be more in the moment with this stuff. But um, but yeah, it's an interesting point. Well, that is another tool of recovery that we're talking about here, and I have not brought it up in this call. Uh, I kind of tend not to because I don't want to be uh, seen as you know being too promotional. Shameless self promotion time. Do it. No, no, it's a good book. It's, it's a very helpful book. <laughs> You know, the the book that I have written about the has about 80, over 80 of the tools that I've learned through recovery and 12-step stuff. And you, these are things that I talk about in my book, that these are the things that helped me get through all this shit. And like I said, there's 80 tools and we're just talking about a couple of them. But that's the point of what I was saying earlier about you know, if we were to t- say to a, somebody who's younger and and trying to deal with all this shit that does get better. You're right. There, there are tools that one must learn in order to, to help it get better. I think what I was just trying to get at is that I, I attempted suicide when I was in my teens and the best phrase that I've heard for, for suicide is that it is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, Right. which I, at the time I didn't think it was a, a temporary problem. I thought my life was always going to be fucked up and I didn't see any way out of it. And yes, there are tools that we have to use to get to a better place, but the conversation about those tools is such a large conversation that I, I guess I wasn't really saying it, but I was implying in my own head that I didn't want to get into that conversation because it's such a large conversation. But yes, there, there is a whole other conversation that can be had about what tools are available and how to use them and and how to learn about them. And I think I was just kind of focusing on the part of, you know, don't get caught up in, in being overwhelmed in the present. Uh, But then yes, like, like I said, that getting into the actual tools and how to use them is this whole, whole other thing. Yeah. And yeah, and it's well, it's it's actually this is why it can be so confusing because like on one hand, don't get caught in the, in the 
don't get stuck in the present. On the other hand, stay present. So it's you know, but um, right. but the um, you know, you said something that was interesting, which was the whole trapped thing, and I think that's one of the things that early on, the beginning of my we'll call it healing process was the first I first time I ever went to therapy session number one of probably you know three thousand or whatever but um and uh and I remember the guy saying I, I was I was explaining I don't want to get too personal but I was explaining something that I where I felt very I was in a situation that I felt very stuck in and he goes well why don't you just get out of that situation and <laughs> I was like it's that simple you know just Right. Yeah, but I was like, oh, I can't do that. He's like, why? Why can't you? I'm like, because it would hurt people. And he's like, so it would help you, right? <laughs> You'll you're hurt. You're hurting now. And it was this weird like moment of like exaltation of being like, holy shit! Like, I can hurt people. <laughs> it's like it's, it was right. Oh, yeah, I'm not, allowed right. to really. Is this? It's like the cage door opening, right? It's uh -huh. like someone just. I, I'm allowed to take care of myself. Yeah, it's like yeah. someone opening that little latch on the cage door and open, swinging it open, and being like, "There you go." And it's like, "Oh, I had no idea I could do that. I didn't even know that wasn't even an option." But yeah, trapped is a very. It's probably the worst feeling, at least for me. You could feel in any situation because that's really where you feel like, well, there's no hope. That's really where hopelessness comes in. Is that like? It's yes, I'm depressed, but I'm also trapped in this depression, and I and I don't think I'm ever going to get out of it. Therefore, why even bother continuing? So anyway, that was just I just recalled that moment of in early therapy where it really opened my eyes to like possible more possibilities. It seems to be a common uh, technique with therapists where they, they ask like a simple question, which seems like it's impossible, but then followed up with an explanation as to how it's impossible or how how it's possible. Yeah, because also. Every one of us is raised a different way, and we are these. And when you're raised, quote unquote, you are instilled with a set of beliefs and guidelines. Mm -hmm. Whether they're whatever those, and I'm not saying just I'm not saying just religion. I'm saying any any moral ethics that you get from your parents or guardians. Those are you grow up that way. That is like that is how you see the world. And mm -hmm. so, for somebody to say, "Hey, you don't have to follow those rules." There's a whole another set of rules you're allowed to follow that will allow you to do things you don't think were possible to do is such an eye-opening, awakening a moment, uh, a moment. So I think, you know, I was probably in my early 20s. So this is, you know. To be even clearer for me, it was, it was someone else pointing out that I was following a rule that I didn't even realize I was following. Mm-hmm. And saying, you don't have to do that. And me having that eye-opening moment of going, holy shit, I've been following this rule without even knowing that I was following a rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just because you, you had such a deep belief of, well, this is just how you do it. Right. It's not yeah. really a rule. Right. It's more of a uh, subconscious dogma. Again, whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> how many tangents have we gotten on this call? <laughs> a few. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's jump down to some of the wrap up questions here. We've still got you know a couple to go through, but um, I'll give you two questions at the same time because it could be the same answer for both, or could be two different answers. Okay. And normally we talk about movies, but you said you're not a big movie person, so we'll switch it to books. The first question would be, what is your favorite book? And then second question would be, what book have you read more times than any other? I don't know if I have a f one favorite book. I have a few favorite books that are kind of all very different from each other. But um, I think the book I've read the most is probably, I don't know, either it or the Hobbit. I guess I've read both of those books several times. Okay. But I, and as far as favorite book, I have, 
I have favorite books for different reasons. I like The Fountainhead. I love that book because I think it's a perfect book. I think it's a perfect novel. I don't necessarily, you know, ascribe to the beliefs or whatever, the dogma, but I but I love that. I think it's a perfectly written novel. I think it is the greatest horror book ever written. You know, maybe maybe the stand is a close second. Uh but there's there's a book called The Magus by John Fowles that I feel is one of the best books. But I would say I, I would say if I had to pick one, I would say Sound and the Fury is probably my favorite book of all time, Mr. Faulkner. Why that one? I think because of the how beautiful it is, how beautifully it's written, and also just how he gets really, you know, deep into the characters' psyches and it's just so poetic, but also like dark and traumatizing. Uh that I think it was that combination reading something so dark that's so beautiful. I think that's really stuck with me. I remember the first time I read that book and I probably read that book three or four times. Um, the first time I read that book, I was like weeping, <laughs> like literally like tears rolling down my face. So, um, so I think that probably was probably, I would say is probably like my favorite, favorite book. I don't think I've ever had that kind of response. The only other time I cried reading a book was um, <laughs> when I was a little kid and I was reading uh, Chronicles of Narnia and there's a scene in the last book where all these horses are coming to like help with this battle that's going on and the horses are all killed or a lot of them are killed and that traumatized me i was very upset during that reading that i was like laying on my couch crying when i was like whatever 11 years old or whatever if you haven't read it yet i, I would highly recommend not uh not reading the never ending story there's there's a sad part in there mm-hmm. i've heard about i've heard about that one i haven't read that i, I haven't read that book or seen the movie probably for those probably for that exact reason Apparently in the book, the horse has dialogue and it makes it even sadder. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. <clears throat> uh, the Hobbit is a bit of an outlier. Let's talk about that real quick. What would you like about that one? When I was a kid, I think it was just like a perfect story. You know, I just, uh, I loved the uh, Bilbo and going, wanting, you know, going on this adventure, you know, and not, you know, the reluctant hero, you know, the ultimate reluctant hero and mm-hmm. the trolls turning to stone is a moment I'll never forget the first time I read it. And in Gollum, you know, that the tragic character of Gollum, almost Shakespearean, you know, the tragic. And I think all those things make that book, it's a children's book, but it, but it has so much heft to it. Uh, there's so much, there's so many themes that you attribute to your, that you can attribute to your own life. And I think, uh, so yeah, so whatever reason it just had an impact. And I think it's also like a ton of fun to read it, but it's, it's dark and it's sad and, and it's an adventure. So I think it's just kind of, it's more, emo- you know, had a stronger emotional impact. Uh, and me and most of the stuff I read as a kid, like, you know, like I said, when I was, a, when I was really young, it was more like fantasy and science fiction and stuff like that. And that not, not a lot of that stuff has, you don't walk away. We don't read any of that. Like the uh, Chronicles of Paladin. I can't remember the name, but there's like seven books. The, but the um, but you know, all these fantasy books I read when I was a kid, and they never really. They were just fun. They were frivolous. You know, they were they were escapism. The Hobbit was one that was um, also had um, some pretty serious emotional emotional impact to it as well. You know. Yeah. Do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Cannibalism, occult, metaphysical. I think thematically through lines, you know, I, I, I feel like I do explore, I, at one point somebody pointed out to me, it's like, you sure write about mothers a lot. 
Mm. And I was like, dude, I, I kind of do, don't I? And I don't know why that is because <laughs> my mother and I have a wonderful relationship and I love her so dearly. But for whatever reason, I explore that theme to the point where I need to like make sure I stop exploring that theme. <laughs> um, but it's something that reappears in a lot of my work. Um, if you read a lot of my early stories, like there's like a evil mother or a, you know, in like a lot of them, which is again, my mother is wonderful and I love her. So I don't know where that comes from, but um yeah, you know, that's a, that's a another therapy session. But uh, that is something that I write about a lot. But I've I, I write about and I write about childhood a lot. So those are themes that I like reading about and I do like exploring. I would say if there's a through line, like which is probably why I'm attracted to it by King. You know, um, and I you know I've, I got to the point too, even writing about kids is something I have to kind of pull back from because I've written so many stories and uh, and novels about children who are the protagonist, you know? Or, um, so um, for whatever reason, it's a, it's something. And I think the reason I've, and I've discussed it a little bit in the past, but I think one of the reasons I enjoy exploring those characters more than say an adult is in the simplest way to put it. And the quickest way to put it is like, if you're a 10 year old and the closet door opens and a ghostly figure steps out, you're going to react one way. If you're a 40 year old, and the same thing happens, you're going to react a completely different way. And I'm much more fascinated with how the child will react <laughs> than I am the adult. And, uh, and, the, and not just in the moment, but the, but the, uh, but the after effects, the, the, way, you know, the way they digest it, the way they analyze it, uh, the, how, it how it impacts their life. You know? So I, I just feel like there's a, there's so, the canvas is blank when you're dealing with children and, um, and it's much more interesting to, to paint upon, to finish the metaphor than it is like when you're dull and you're dealing with a very crowded canvas of stuff that already is there and you have, it's more to sift through it. Mm -hmm. So, um, two different approaches, but I would to answer your question thematically. Uh, yeah, I would say probably I'm attracted more to reading about kids going through horrific traumatic experiences than I'm adults. Okay. That kind of lines up with some of the things I've been thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, so at this point, uh, before asking the last couple of questions, let's kind of do a little summary of some of the topics that we have talked about. I think maybe the best summary that I can find uh, as far as topics are kind of two sides of the same coin. It's either a desire for or a distaste for certain emotional connections. So. I'll, to support that, I'll mention a couple of the things that have come up in the distaste. Some of the things about holidays and uh, you know the decorations and forced uh, connections, going out in public uh, for some of those things. Possibly workaholic, maybe is is a method of avoiding some of that. Dreams of being lost kind of supports the desire for a connection. It the kids are neglected by the adults in that book quite a bit. The character on the bridge thinking about the world around him, connecting with the world. Your comment about just a minute ago about being interested in how kids are affected by the things that happen to them. So to me, that seems like it's a, a very deep connection for you in terms of what's important to you also related to horror. Do you think that there's a better summary that I'm like near, but maybe not quite on the mark. No, I don't think there's a better summary. I, I don't have any disagreement with what you said. I think it sounds like a pretty, I think it sounds pretty, pretty spot on. Okay. I got a recap on the summer. You said a lot of words there and I kind of missed it. 
<laughs> a, dist- a, a, a desire and a distaste for emotional connections, I think, is the quick way to put it, right? Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 The natural follow question to that is do you have any idea why that might be? Well, more so the desire than the distaste. I think, I think that, you know, exploring a, des- you know, exploring um, emotional connections in my work is something that I excites me because I feel like it, it's interesting to I mean, it's interesting to me, obviously why it's interesting, interesting to me is maybe just because I, um, you know, I'm less of a storyteller and more of a, you know, emotional explorer. And I think, um, I think, I don't know why, you know, but no, I don't know why that interests me more than it, why, you know, why people are interested in, 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 you know, science more than football, but I just, but for whatever reason, it's something I gravitate toward. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I'm, I don't know if it's something that I'm born with or if it's genetic or it's the way my brain is wired, or if it's something that if I had grown up a different way, maybe I wouldn't be as interested. I don't know. I think the distaste part, um, that I don't, <laughs> I don't even have a clue why I don't understand. I believe me. It's frustrating. I wish I, there's nothing an introvert you know, in my book, the child alone with stranger, I'm sorry, um, uh, don't let them get you down. One of the things that that character goes through kind of over and over again, he's is his desire to be normal. Uh, I just want to be like everybody else. I just want to be able to go out and do stuff and not have this, not have it be like so traumatic and not have it be like this big deal. And I think that, you know, maybe that's something that I've feel at times as well. But for the most part, um, I've got, but I've gotten to the point, I think, you know, I think uh, Chris said it earlier is like, you know, I've just, I got to the point where I don't care anymore. You know, I don't need this, you know, I'm old enough now where I don't need to like worry about giving a shit about what other people think. It's about me and about what I think and what I want to do. And um, so I, 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 I yeah. So I think that's, but I don't know why I have such a distaste toward holidays or toward those kind of experiences. I think it's just, um, it just doesn't it just doesn't affect me and therefore it's a waste of my time. Yeah. Two things I want to say. One one is that uh on on the topic of desire for and I'm not saying that this is necessarily a strong connection. I'm just saying that there possible minor connection. You know, you mentioned earlier on that you were uh, the youngest of six and kind of left to your own devices. Um not saying that there was necessarily a bad relationship with your parents, but maybe maybe a slight desire that there could have been a little more the thing about the distaste for certain emotional connections part of my thing with counseling and therapy i've i grew up in a very religious household and had to attend mass sometimes as many as four times uh each sunday because my grandmother was the head lector and sometimes she would read in polish and in english and so I got really burned out on on going to mass, and it also used to kind of grate on me because, like to me, my visual of it was, okay, we're going to get four hundred people in a room together, and on the count of three, we're all going to feel at the same time, right? And my emotions don't work that way, right? Like I can't just go, okay, one, two, three, feel. There's no switch. You can just switch on switch. I well. <laughs> I think now as an adult, maybe I can, but I couldn't then. Yeah, I, mean, I was obviously um, joking. It's, it's not a switchable thing. It's, I mean, certain triggers trigger emotions. Yeah, but you, you can't just turn them on and off. They happen. You don't make them happen. 
Well, that's true. But what I'm talking about is specifically the the emotion of connecting, feeling connected to something. Yeah, yeah that's it. I, I have learned that I can tune into that, but I couldn't at the time. And it was irritating to me to be told to when I didn't feel I could. And also as part of my counseling and 12 step process, I get, I became very almost hyper aware of when I, when I'm being told to do something like there's this phrase, never let anyone should on you. And I, <laughs> I've become very aware of when people are telling me what I should do. And it pisses me off because I, I I'm, don't tell me how I should feel. Like that's that was part of my childhood was being told that I I wasn't allowed to feel this way. Like you, you're upset, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, like oh yeah, sure, we all get that line. Right. You have no reason to be angry. You have no reason to be sad. You have no reason to do anything but you know be happy. Um, so there is at least I, I'm trying. I'm not trying to speak for you, but I'm just sharing what I've gone through. And you know, maybe this connects with you. Maybe it doesn't, but. You know, so those are those are my two thoughts on the desire for and the distaste for certain ki- kinds of connections. And I don't know, you can tell me whether or not that jives with you. Or not. Well, it, it, the religion, I mean, the religious upbringing jives with me. I was same thing. I was born, you know, raised in a very religious home, which is part of the reason that I've felt so trapped when I got into certain areas later in life where I felt like I had no choices because of hell was waiting to swallow me. And it's it, and, yeah, like I can't go. I can't. I can't even step into a church today. It's um Will you catch fire? No, I just can't deal. I can't take it. Like I can't I get I my anxiety spikes through the roof. I the, the whole idea of like being with it's it creeps me it creeps me out, you know, going into a room with all these people and they're all doing this on cue and this on cue, now shake hands, no hug, no and they're also oh, yeah. happy. Yeah. And it's like it's man, it's it's terror. It's body snatchers, terrifying, and um, and the whole idea is, and I'm not a anti-religion necessarily. Um, I think there's very good people doing very nice things. Um, but that group, yeah. kind of ritualistic, man-crafted, uh, you know, repetitive, you know, things to, to so they feel part of something is in, is horrifying. It's and inherently you, creepy. Yeah, and un- and and uh, yeah, and unlike you, Steve, I don't think I could. I can't do it today. Even uh, matter of fact, I would say I'm worse today as an adult than I was as a child. As a child, I was probably more malleable. I could. I was more easily like. I was getting your ass beat. Yeah, I was just. I was like, I could, you know, if like you're telling me that I got to s- sit in the pew and do this and sing that and write, then like, all right, whatever, I'll do it. I don't really care. Now it's like I couldn't. I couldn't. I can't even fake it. I would not even be able to. I wouldn't in the last five minutes. And I would say that, as you mentioned, that do I wish I had a different connection with my parents necessarily? You know, I don't, I won't, I won't get into too personal detail, but I'll say that, um, you know, I really had no connection with my father. And I was actually thinking about this just the other day because my son and I were talking about something or other. And I was like, I don't think I can think of one moment from my childhood. As, with my father where I was like, this is like a nice memory. Mm. I don't think there's a single moment mm. that I could draw up if I, if you were to put a gun to my head and I don't know why that is. I'm sure there's a lot to do with the fact that I was the youngest of six, that I was fiercely independent, that I was a troublemaker, that I was very difficult as a teenager and all that kind of stuff. But there were also, there also were a lot of uh, other 
reasons, you know, <clears throat> you know, as far as his disposition and my disposition were clashed very heavily. And um, so, yeah, so I don't know, but that could be to some extent why maybe I search for those connections in my literature or at least explore them or explore them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, sort of the last question then is why horror? Because couldn't you explore emotional connections in any number of genres? Yeah. And I think, see, that's what I think. I think the answer is no, not really. And that's why I kind of get back to um, what I said very early on in our conversation, which is I feel like horror explores things to the extreme. And I think that that's, I want to go as far as I can take it as it pertains to emotional and psychological responses. And I think horror is the only place you can really get there. I mean, and I'm not plugging it, I swear to God, but but going to my book, you know, the, the non-genre book, don't give me, don't let them get you down. That book is um is not horror, but that is probably a much more deep exploration of psyche and emotional range than any of my horror books. But the difference is you can only really tell that story once. You know, you can, it's it's a very realistic depiction of a character going through a very specific situation. So it can't, you know, with horror, you can do it in a lot of different ways. You can do it with different characters. You can put them in different situations. You can explore them all different ways. You know, I wrote a story called Failsafe, which is about a mother who is locked in the basement because every so often she turns into a monster. And so the father and the son have to lock her away until until it passes. And, you know, you could go, you could kind of go for hours exploring, you know, the, the, the psychological themes of that. But those are the kind of situations I'm talking about where with horror, you can do these extreme speculative scenarios and put your characters in there and put different characters in there and kind of see what happens. And I think that horror is the only place you can, in my opinion, horror is the only genre where you can really do that. You know, I've never thought about this before, but while you were saying all this, something else occurred to me too, which is also, maybe that it's easier to resolve these kinds of themes in horror mm. than in nonfiction. Because there is an obvious antagonist or an obvious problem, whereas and think, well... Well, I mean, in horror, there's a monster, you kill the monster, done. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, that's oversimplifying it. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's a common uh, theme. You know, you have your uh, exceptions, like, uh, say, Cabin of the Woods, where, you know, the, the monster is giant evil gods that destroy the world in the end so that one doesn't count but um but yeah no <laughs> i guess in horror it is a, a lot more i don't know binary like that like it's on off monster dead well problem solved i mean you have to tell the story in a um i don't want to say bite-sized piece but a a, a size limit that is consumable you know mm -hmm. it, it is a couple you know over a thousand pages long mm -hmm. but people do read that but you know real life dealing with stuff in real life can take decades you know and you don't have that kind of you don't always have that kind of space in a novel yeah, you certainly don't get into the after effects of whatever trauma it is that happens in the story itself um i mean that said you know my child loan with strangers my novel that came out past years 600 pages so I, I definitely took some time with it but but yeah I, I don't i don't know i don't know if i would agree with that or disagree with that i think i never i don't think i would have a problem ending a story no matter how what genre or what classification of you know it was i think it's for me it's more of the exploration I, you know i don't think horror necessarily makes it easier to wrap up or 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 you know 
or put a pin in or, you know, or put a button on as you want to phrase it. But I don't think, uh, I don't think so for me. It's like a lot of my stories are somewhat have somewhat ambiguous endings. Cause I want the, I want the themes to sort of to be the, what resonates, not the, not the, the final twist or whatever. Yeah. I think for me, it's more about, about the characters and the, and the scenario than it is about anything. I, I just don't think you can do what you can do in horror with other genres. And now that said, I wrote a science fiction novel that I think it's really deep into loss. And it, and it was the, that was the platform I chose to tell that particular emotional theme, mm-hmm. you know? So, who, I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying it's horror or nothing. I'm just saying, I think for generally speaking for me, it, it's easier to get to dig into those extreme scenarios because I can create and I can put the, I can put these characters in any situation I want. There's no limit. There's no rules. There's no, the sandbox has no borders. So for me, that's what right. makes it interesting. Okay. A second ago, when I said last question, I forgot mm-hmm. there we've added one more in the last uh, couple episodes, which is, is there anything you've thought of that might be relevant that hasn't come up on the call? Like maybe you thought of something that you wanted to say, and then the conversation turned and you didn't get a chance to say it. No, man. No, I think we've, I feel like we've explored every, point that you brought up pretty thoroughly. I don't think there's anything I was left um, holding on to. Okay. Cool. Well, <laughs> I think we uh, covered a lot of material. Yeah. Um, got some. This was a great therapy session, you guys. Thank you so much. I, <laughs> I needed one. It was, it was a little awful for me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. And thank you to anybody out there listening. Um, please come do visit us at horrormakesushappy.com. We are in growth mode, so the number one thing you can do is to help is to tell a friend, but you can always uh, also support us by purchasing any kind of the merchandise we have there or becoming a Patreon supporter or just buy a, a coffee. 